Anybody else? No? Okay. Lay that aside and uh, we'll come back to that at the end and hopefully uh, save about 10 or 15 minutes for our intercessory prayer time. Uh, I want you to find Genesis chapter uh, 6 tonight. In fact, chapters 5 and 6 as we continue our journey uh, through the book of Genesis. We wrapped up chapter 4 last week. And I just want to highlight something out of chapter 5, but then we're going to be looking more in depth at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6. And uh, what I'm going to title tonight's is Where Sin Inevitably Leads. Where Sin Inevitably Leads from Genesis chapter 6. And this is now our sixth message, too, going through uh, the book of Genesis. You'll notice in chapter 5, very long lives, before we read in chapter 6, very long lives in chapter 5. Now, what did we say about that last week? They all died, with the exception of Enoch. But remember what we said about the long lifespans? Right. Uh, I, I do take it that the years were measured the same they are today. Uh, I don't think you can say, well, time was measured differently. I, I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is, uh, of course, from Genesis chapter 3 onward, uh, sin is now... Uh, In the very gene pool, sin has affected the whole entire created order. Everything in the created order. And I believe Adam and Eve, there's every indication in Genesis 1 and 2 that when they were created, they they were going to live and not die because in Genesis 3... Uh, Physical and spiritual death was a result of sin. Well, they did sin. And Paul even says in Romans chapter 8 that sin entered the very created order. But early on, early on with mankind, though sin has come into the very makeup and gene pool of man, uh, certainly it has not had time as of yet to have all of the negative effects on the human body that we see. And in fact, after the flood, we're going to see further limitation. Uh, But I think that explains the long lifespans at this point. Uh, Of course, as each generation has lived and the effects of sin in the gene pool, uh, we've made remarkable advancements, of course. But at the same time, All of this devastation that would affect man's makeup. Uh, So anyway, that I think explains the longer lifespans that we see here. Now the name Methuselah literally means when he dies, it will come. By the way, I heard a cell phone going off. I'm going to ask you, go ahead and uh, silence your cell phones tonight if you don't mind. Uh, We have a lot of those beginning to go off on Wednesday nights, and I certainly would appreciate if you would go ahead and and, uh, silence your cell phone. Uh, But anyway, Methuselah, the name means literally, when he dies, it will come. And scholars tell us that if you go back and and put together some of the dates and ages of things going on here, uh, the year that Methuselah died is the year that the flood came. So his name was even symbolic of that. When he dies, it will come. Uh, Let's pick up in verse 6. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. 
His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man that they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so the Bible plainly tells us that before Jesus Christ comes back, conditions will be just like they were on the earth right before uh, the flood came, while Noah was alive. Well, if that's the case, what were the conditions like leading up to the flood? That's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 6 tonight. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the description we see of mankind in Genesis chapter 6 is much like what we're seeing today. And so what does that tell us about the day that we live in? Judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. And when it comes back, there will be the judgment of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. And the righteous will enter into eternal life. And the wicked will be shut out forever and ever from the presence of the Lord. And who knows, the unfolding of all of these events could begin tonight for all we know. The Lord could come back for His bride tonight. Are we ready for that? Are we ready for that? Well, let's look at what was going on in Genesis chapter 6. The first thing I want you to see with me tonight is the corruption of mankind. The corruption of mankind. And I also want you to turn over to verse 11. I didn't read this far, but I want you to look at verses 11 and 12 with me. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, what we see here is man who was made in the image of God and he is carrying about without God's spirit in him. He's carrying about with his God-given dominion but without God in his heart. And what's the result of that? Well, like we saw last week, the descendants of Cain were able to do some very remarkable achievements, were they not? They were able to begin building great cities. And so they were able to accomplish some of these great feats, but again, they were doing it without God. No house can stand that way. Arnold Toynbee has indicated that there have been in the past some 21 or 22 different civilizations and every single one of them, he says, have collapsed the identical way. You know what way that is? Corruption. Corruption from inside. Corruption in a society that gets worse and worse and worse until that society cannot stand any longer. Well, here in verse 1, we have the beginnings 
of population explosion. It says when man began to multiply on the face of the land. And then in verse 2 we're introduced to the sons of God. The sons of Elohim. Now there's three different ways that the sons of God in this text have been identified through the ages. And I'm going to tell you which one that I side with. But number one, and it's, it's not the one that I side with, but as different expositors have looked at this phrase, sons of God, some believe it's referring to kings or the sons of kings who ruled back in Noah's day. Sometimes kings were looked at as gods, being gods. Sometimes they would proclaim themselves being like a god. The way in New Testament times, some of the Roman emperors, beginning with Augustus, tried to uh, paint themselves as being divine. And so some interpreters believe this is simply referring to kings. And what you have here is pagan kings and their sons looking out at the human race and being so powerful that they were able to seize any women that they wanted and add those women to their harems. And that's what's being referred to in verse 2. Now... I don't believe that's the proper interpretation, but that's one interpretation nonetheless. A second way, which has been very popular, but again, I don't think it's the proper way to look at it, but a very popular way to look at it is that the sons of God being referred to here is the line of Seth. And the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, looking at women from the ungodly line, the descendants of Cain, and desiring daughters of Cain. And so what you have here would be the sin of being unequally yoked. You've got Seth's sons and grandsons and so forth who knew the Lord lusting after the daughters and granddaughters of Cain who did not know the Lord and you have marriages taking place that should not have taken place. When that happens today, what generally occurs? Whichever believing uh, member of the marriage you have is usually pulled down by the unbelieving member, right? And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, tells us not to be unequally yoked. Now, if somebody finds themselves unequally yoked because they were both unbelievers at the time of marriage... And one has gotten saved, the other has not, and so they've now become a couple that's unequally yoked. What's supposed to take place? Stay in the marriage. Paul says if the, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay in the marriage, stay in the marriage. And hopefully then the believing spouse will have a sanctifying influence over the children. But Paul says, what if the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay in the marriage? And they want to leave. What's Paul say then? Let them leave. You're not bound. He goes on to say in that case, you don't know if you could have had a saving effect or not. And his point is that believers are always to be agents of reconciliation. It shouldn't be the believer leaving. If the unbeliever leaves, let them leave. But the believer needs to be the agent of reconciliation and try to work things out uh, if that's possible. And so you have some very important Christian voices, some very conservative voices that say that's the way that this passage right here is supposed to be interpreted. And they would tell us it's the most logical and the most reasonable reading of the text. 
Now again, while all that's true, I don't believe it's the correct interpretation at all. And I'm going to base my convictions on exegetical grounds, exegetical grounds through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and also early Jewish exegetes, and not only the early Jewish exegetes, but also the early Christian fathers, men like Tertullian and Origen, men like that. There's been a pretty consistent way of interpreting this text. And then even on New Testament exegetical grounds. Because the New Testament writer Jude, for instance, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not view this text as meaning the sons of Seth married the daughters of Cain. And so if we hold to the inspiration of the Bible, which I hope you do, and we hold to the fact that the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament in places, then you can't say that this is the sons of Seth marrying the daughters of Cain. That interpretation cannot stand. And so what is the the third interpretation? Which I believe is the correct interpretation. And it's going to puzzle you. It's going to puzzle you a great deal when I mention it. But just hang on. Yes. Sons of God are seen in this third interpretation here as referring, the sons of God in this passage referring to fallen angels who lusted after earthly women and somehow or another in a way that you and I don't understand there was able to be a union. Now remember Jesus said in the gospels that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage in their proper estate. But we're talking about angels here who have left their proper estate. Well let me explain this a bit more because I know it's a mystery and we don't fully understand it. But I I think all things considered, it's the only way to properly interpret it. The phrase sons of God occurs five times in the Old Testament. Three times in the book of Job. The first two times it seems rather apparent that angels are being referred to. And that would be in Job chapter 1 verse 6 and Job chapter 2 verse 1. And then the third time is also in Job, Job chapter 38 verse 7, where we read that at the creation of the world, the morning stars sang together and that the sons of God shouted for joy. And it is a reference to the angels worshiping before God. Now the other reference is in the book of Daniel where we're told that Nebuchadnezzar saw four men walking around in his fiery furnace. He recognized three of them and he said the fourth was like a son of the gods. Well, the expression sons of God in clearly in four out of five times at least is is obviously a reference to angels. And, possi- and, and, and obviously, too, a reference to Jesus when referred to in the singular. Well, that leads one to believe that the only other occurrence of that phrase, sons of God, which is this occurrence right here in Genesis chapter 6, consistently must mean the same thing. Also, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint translators consistently translated sons of God as angels of God. 
And then we come over to the New Testament, to the book of Jude. And in verses 6 and 7, Jude says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, he's comparing them to the angels, have have gone after strange flesh or set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so what Jude is doing is comparing what was going on at Sodom and Gomorrah where we have men seeking men to these fallen angels, men who go after strange flesh for the purposes of sexual perversion. You say, well, how is that even possible? How would it even be possible for angelic beings to enter into some kind of union like this? Well, two things could make this possible and not so far-fetched at all. First, oftentimes in the Old Testament, good angels would take on The appearance of a body. Or they would take on a body. I think of Abraham entertaining such angels along with the Lord Jesus. And then also on the negative side of that, remember about Sodom and Gomorrah. The wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to have sex with the angels that had come to warn Lot suggesting that these angels had taken on some kind of body because the men of Sodom wanted to have sex with them. Another way to look at it would be that these fallen angels, these sons of God, were able to demonically possess human men. And so you had demonically possessed human men having union with these women. And the result is, what is being pointed out here is that there is a whole new dimension of lawlessness that before this had not been introduced into the human race. Demonic powers on the loose on planet earth. And now they're having influence on what is happening. The offspring of these demonic and fleshly unions are mentioned here in verse 4. The Nephilim. These were the ancient men of renown. Now... John Phillips is somebody who, who discusses these children in a, in a very interesting slant. Just, just listen to what the analogy that he makes. Greek mythology is filled with legends of supernatural creatures who lusted after fleshly women and bore offspring. He wonders if Greek mythology, though distorted, doesn't have a grain of truth in it. In other words, some of those legends in Greek mythology were based on the reality of what Genesis 6 is speaking of. His point is that oftentimes in legends, even fanciful and and fictional legends, the legend is based on some kind of reality. I think another way to look at some of these legends, uh, let me chase a rabbit here has nothing to do with this, but another way to look at some of these legends has to do with dinosaurs. 
You have all of these legends of men like in King Arthur's court. These these knights in shining armor with their swords. And what are they doing? Slaying dragons. Okay? And it's amazing all these stories that are out there that have made it down to us through legendary tales. What would you say about that? Are they just legends? Could they be based on any reality? Well, what if on the ark? What might have been on the ark? Dinosaurs. Answers in Genesis. Ken Ham. Little baby dinosaurs that got off the ark, grew up. And as they grew up, men killed them. But you get down to the time of King Arthur and so forth, those legendary tales, and you still have these tales of men slaying fire-breathing dragons. What might that be? Men killing off dinosaurs. My only point is, some of these, as some of these writers talk about, some of these legendary tales that we just, we just think about, legendary tales, Greek mythology or King Arthur and these people slaying dragons, these stories could have been based on real occurrences. Sure, absolutely. Yep. So again, how would it happen that you have sons of God, angels, fallen angels, entering into union, some kind of union, with earthly women? I don't know. But that does seem to be the consistent way exegetically uh, in both Old Testament and New Testament. The most faithful exegetical way of looking at the text. And it seems to be even the way that Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was thinking back on this text. And guess what? Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that ought to settle the issue once and for all. Sure. Sure. Right. So encounters, as Job's talking about, encounters, real life encounters that men had with dinosaurs. Sure. Sure. Yes. But again, the, the consistent meaning of sons, and, sons of God uh, referring to angels, that's the way Jude interprets it. And then I would also add, even in verse 6, it implies something abnormal going on. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. That would have been, if we're just talking about sons of Seth and sons of Cain, that would have been nothing different than what had been going on anyway. But he seems to be highlighting here that something different is going on. 
Because the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. There's something unusual going on here. Well, the result was what? Wickedness and violence as this world had never seen before. Verse 5, God's discernment of it. He saw what was going on. Obviously, he saw. He's sovereign. And he noticed that every imagination, every imagination of a man's heart is wicked. Imagination is from, the, from a Hebrew root relating to pottery. And it means to fashion as a potter. Men were fashioning wicked philosophies and espousing filthy causes and pouring out all of that on society of their time. Does that sound like today? Yes. And God sees. God sees today just like He saw then. So we see God's discernment and then we see God's disappointment. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. You can only grieve what you love. Man had been created for one purpose, and now that purpose is being perverted. And so then we have God's decision in verses uh, 3 and 7. And what's God's decision? He's going to destroy man. Generation after generation for 120 years. Well, they, they look at some of the lifespans in chapter 5 and they extrapolate out typical children at that time year by year in an adult's life and they total them together and they try to come out with totals and and you know some would say millions and millions I, I don't know you'll find different figures but it, it wasn't just a few a lot of people a lot of people Well, I mean, think, think about, now you're, you're talking in the negative demonic power, but think about the Holy Spirit, and I realize He's God, but the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary. So when we talk about how can a spirit in flesh produce a child, well, you have the Holy Spirit and Mary, Jesus being conceived, so I'm saying from that, uh, we, we don't know how it happens, but we know it happens. It'd be a great question to ask him one day, but again... I know how the sons of God is interpreted in the Old Testament and then how Jude, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets this text. And I think we have to conclude that it's, it's talking about demonic powers with earthly women. I don't, I don't know that it... Personally, I don't see how you can interpret it any other way than that. That's just, that's just, it seems pretty an open and shut case to me as I look at the different interpretations. But that's just me. Do you have any language, 
Sure. Yes. Right. Yes. 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 And that and that's why I say it's it's different because in this case you're talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, a, a virgin conceiving through the power of the Holy Spirit. Much different than talking about demonic powers with women, of course, diametrically opposed. But still the same concept of a spirit and flesh. Uh, but anyway, I, I, to me, the consistent interpretation is in Genesis 6. It's, it's talking about demonic powers with earthly women. Even if it was that those demonic powers possessed earthly men. It's, it's recognized as the most difficult passage in the book of Genesis. But anyway, again, God saw what was going on. God's disappointed. He decides to destroy. And he says in verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Folks, what he's not talking about here is that man's lifespan at this point is just simply going to be 120 years. What he's talking about is in 120 years, the flood's going to come. And he's going to commission Noah to build the ark. Think about it. Noah didn't go out and build the ark in six months. Now true, he might have hired help or whatever, but still you're talking about a monumental undertaking. God is saying, man's got 120 years before I'm going to send this destruction. So generation after generation goes on for 120 years. And the New Testament also tells us that during this time, what's Noah doing? What's Noah doing as he's building the ark? He's a preacher of righteousness. By the way, the New Testament in the book of Jude also tells us that Enoch, Enoch, who was not, because God took him in chapter 5, Enoch was also a preacher of righteousness. So there's definitely a strong witness on the face of the earth. Man didn't know the destruction that awaited him. Folks, I want you to think about something. Just because judgment did not come immediately didn't mean that it wasn't coming. It eventually came in the flood. Men tend to think just because they're getting away with something now. You know what? God's not going to judge earth. God's not going to judge man. Look at how bad men are getting. God hadn't handled it yet. God hadn't taken care of it yet. And so they conclude maybe God's not there. and Maybe God's not going to judge. Yes, he is. He's long-suffering and patient. But he eventually judges. What must God think as he looks at the world today? Are our times any different than Noah's times? No. Here were men doing whatever they wanted to do, living any old way that they wanted to live. They were living in the midst of multiplying sin and corruption. And God dealt with it. We're repeating the same mistakes. 2 Timothy 3 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such turn away. People are doing their own thing today just like in Noah's day. There's violence everywhere. There's sexual perversion everywhere today. 
According to George Barna, two-thirds of adults in America believe that the world is absolutely out of control. It ought to be more than two-thirds. Spiritually, we're told that right before the end, what's going to happen? There's going to be a falling away. Already that's happening. Five out of every hundred church members can't even be found when we try to find them. Uh, One-fifth of all church members say they they never pray. A fourth say they never read their Bibles. Uh, Thirty out of a hundred say they no longer ever go to church. Forty out of a hundred never give to a church. Eighty out of a hundred say they're never involved in any way in any kind of ministry. Ninety-five out of a hundred say that they have never even one time in all of their adult lives shared their faith in Christ with anybody. 54% say the Bible is not the Word of God. Actually, that statistic now has gone up. It's something like uh, 68% that don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. In 1991, it was discovered that the majority of Americans say that it does not matter to whom you pray. Amazing. Amazing. Morally, look what's happening. Billy Graham once said, One of the biggest problems confronting our world is the fact that through years of manipulation and deceit, morality and traditional values are no longer in vogue. By and large, the secular culture will accept any set of values or beliefs of any sort of behavior so long as it is not. Christian. The world will accept any morals, any values as long as it's not the Christian values. And again, people think judgment's not coming. As surely as it came during the days of Noah, it's coming again. Now, just very briefly tonight, I realize our time's drawing near. Let's look at the consecration of Noah. The consecration of Noah. Read verse 8 and 9 with me. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Here was a man, like a green bush... In a brown desert, he stood alone. Have you ever been in the majority? I mean, excuse me, the minority? Noah certainly was. He was, think about it. In the context of what we've just read in Genesis chapter 6. When God looked out across the landscape of the world. He found one man. And he saved that one man with that one man's family. That's all. Boy, you want to talk about a major, uh, minority? We might be a minority. I'm glad that not a single one of us can say, you know what? I'm the only one on the face of the earth. That's righteous. The only one. I'm glad we've got more than just one. One man's family. Amen. He was it. Other men were energized by Satan. From what I've just said earlier on, other men, other men were energized by Satan. Here's a man energized By God. God had a plan for this righteous man. We're going to read more about that in verses 14 to to 22. And notice that the plan rested on the faithful word of God. And Noah had to believe that, that word. For Noah to do what Noah did, he had to believe God's word. 
Why would a man do what he did in building that ark if he didn't believe God's word? Hebrews 6 says he's one of the ones who by faith did what he did. Sometimes we, we wonder if obedience pays off. The case of Noah is an encouragement that it matters. That even if no one else is being faithful, you be faithful. While we're told that God doesn't show favoritism, He does make a distinction between men. Just like we're told in the Bible that God made a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians. God makes distinctions. He's not after the strongest. He's after the humble and the contrite in heart. 1 Corinthians 1. God revealed His plans to Noah. He announces salvation to Noah. Again, Noah had to listen. He had to prepare. He had to respond in faith and obedience. Imagine that. For 120 years, Noah's doing what he's doing without seeing God bring about the destruction yet. Boy, that's a testimony to us, isn't it? Keep believing even over the passage of time. On and on in the Bible we're told how we're to live. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Your body is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be ye holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Over and over and over in the Bible, we're told how to live. God's provided an ark for us. The ark was a picture of salvation in Jesus Christ. And guess what's on the other side of coming destruction? John says the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The day of judgment is coming, but the day of deliverance is coming also. Amen? Amen. Meanwhile, society just goes on doing what society's doing. And just like with Noah... The day came, sudden and swift destruction. And we're told that's how it's going to be again. Two lessons in closing. Lesson number one, God will faithfully judge the righteous. Uh, God will faithfully judge the unrighteous and save the righteous. And God is, God is not unjust in doing so, in, in judging the unrighteous. God's not unjust in doing that. God will faithfully judge the unrighteous and save the righteous. And number two, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. How is it with you? Strong delusion or faith? Are you living as a man of faith, as a woman of faith? Are you standing strong even against the tide of corruption that's going on around us? Are you losing heart because of the passage of time? Remember, God reckons time differently. And as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is long-suffering and patient. And that's why we've not seen Him destroy this world again yet. But just because He hasn't yet doesn't mean that He won't. Because He will. And He is going to. Father, we pray for the multitudes even around us who will go to sleep tonight.
And they have no idea about their impending destruction and judgment. Sadly, even many in the church today who think that they are Christians just because they say they are. And they go to sleep tonight thinking they're safe. And they're anything but. Lord, open eyes that folks will see the glory of God in Christ and be saved. Open eyes against or, or as opposed to this climate of blindness that we're in. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. God, we pray that you would open eyes. That people would see Jesus and that he, and he alone, is the ark of safety. And that they would place their faith and trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. Because as the Apostle said in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, no no other name given among men under heaven uh, other than the name of Jesus. So Lord, help people to trust in Christ. Lord, use us. We all have circles of influence, people around us in our family, neighbors, co-workers, school associates who are lost. And Lord, you've put us in their path to be salt and light. I read these statistics that 95% of Christians say they have never even one time shared their faith in Jesus Christ with anybody. God, forgive us. How can that be when Jesus gave the great commission, the last commandment that he gave to the church? It's not the great suggestion, but the great commission. And we've turned it into the great omission. Forgive us. Lord, we do pray for a revival in the church across America. Lord, only you can do this through the power of your Spirit. And God, we pray that you would do that again, that we might see that before your return. That you might let us see it one more time. That there would be another great awakening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.